0: On November 2nd of last year, the day before the presidential election, then President Donald Trump used an executive order to create the 1776 Commission. The purpose of this commission was to promote a quote patriotic education. The commission was to teach children about the miracle of American history. Shortly before the executive order, Trump had publicly attacked and denounced the teachings of critical race theory and and the 1619 Project. Critical race theory is a movement created by civil rights scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell, with the purpose of transforming the way we talk about race, and power, and oppression in America. The movement aims to show how America's racist history has created racial inequity today. The 1619 Project is a long-form journalism project developed by Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine. It aims to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the center of the United States national narrative. The project won a Pulitzer Prize last year. Trump threatened to take away funding from schools in California that teach the 1619 Project. He said that critical race theory and the 1619 Project are, quote, toxic propaganda and ideological poison. On President Biden's first day in office, he disbanded the Trump administration's 1776 commission. Today on the show, we wanted to examine what is taught in United States schools. We're gonna take a look at history class. And is there a better way to frame historic narratives? What about sex education? What are we taught in school, and does it really set us up for healthy and safe sexual relationships as adults? And finally, are our schools inclusive of all sexualities and genders? I'm Isaac Goff-Mitchell, and you're listening to The Youth Vote. This is episode three in our Education in America series. Don't go anywhere. To understand what is taught in America's schools, we need to talk about the laws and policies that surround education. So, we're going to back up a bit and give a quick overview of some of these laws. A lot of the laws that impact education today actually started back in 1965 with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. It aimed to create equal opportunity for all students and it has transformed a few times since 1965. One of the most well-known iterations is the No Child Left Behind Act, which passed in 2001. You might have heard of it. It was in effect from 2002 to 2015. The No Child Left Behind Act was pretty controversial. The intent was to level the educational playing field, but it had a huge impact on expanding standardized testing, And critics say the reliance on standardized testing really started to limit the topics that teachers could cover in their lesson plans because there was a lot of pressure to do well on these standardized tests. And if schools didn't score well, there were serious consequences. A lot of schools even had to shut down. A Brookings report from 2010 said that the policy didn't even do much to improve student performance. In some cases, math and reading scores even got worse. The no child left behind policy is no longer in effect, but it had a big impact on the way that schools operate today. And standardized tests still have a lot of control over what teachers can discuss in the classroom. While curriculum varies state by state, there are some key notions that exist in classrooms across the country. After this short break, we will begin by looking at the ways we talk about the colonization of America.
1: Everyone has problems. We in Nigeria are facing a serious problem in our society. It stems from different view of religion, politics, ethnic differences, tribe, and it runs deep. We, as the youth of this country, the next generation, are responsible to find the solutions to this problem. Join me on Eye of Africa weekly to discuss solutions to these problems.
0: Welcome back, everyone. To understand how history is taught, we need to look at who is centered in the narratives. When we talk about the beginning of America, many of us learned that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Pilgrims and Native people had a feast together, and they shared their
2: ideas. But... The history is so much more rich than that in relationship to how Native peoples were present in the space, but also how they were affected by the um, arrival and then onslaught of European folks.
0: That is Vance Black Fox. He was featured in our first episode in the series. He works for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition.
2: Every piece of land that that people walk on or drive on or live on in the United States presently, or even Canada and Mexico and um, South America is, is stolen land. And while the history Books would tell us that Christopher Columbus, you know, discovered America. The reality is we are also committed to making sure that folks know that no, there was no discovery by Christopher Columbus, but instead there were Native peoples that were here for a very, very long time, for time immemorial, way beyond our own memories.
0: Vance explained that there were thousands of different tribal groups here before the Europeans
2: arrived. So all these groups of people had very sophisticated lives and um, were very intellectual and different tribal groups had created very in-depth ways, uh, in-depth ways of knowing about the land that they were on, but also technology that was, that was unheard of even in Europe, right? The way in which cities were built. I mean, there's evidence of this. It's not like it's just made up. There's pyramids everywhere and mounds. This isn't as if it's, you know, new to us, but it always seems to be so surprising to other people who don't know anything about us or, you know, haven't been taught or just don't care because of privilege in today's society.
0: Today, there are just 574 federally recognized tribes, and the colonizers and U.S. government have done a lot to get that number where it is and try to eliminate Native people.
2: But whether it was through intentional murder or through disease, and sometimes the intentional spreading of diseases, knowing that we didn't have immunity, a lot of our people died. How many times systemically over time did the federal government try to eradicate us, either through actual killing, isolating us from healthcare or healthy foods, or sending us to boarding schools to separate us from our families and from our culture, and then ultimately from our land. So lots of missing, lots of missing in our curriculums about Indigenous peoples in general.
0: European settlers used Christianity to justify the settling of America and the genocide of Native people. The Doctrine of Discovery was issued in 1493, and it said that if you are a Christian and you discover lands where no Christians are living, then you have the right to claim them.
2: That you have the right to claim it in the name of your church and your country. And, you know, that was a Catholic order, but over time, man, Protestants, Protestant Christians also took hold of that, uh, that proclamation. And so it was the church then that gave permission to their Christian membership, if you will, who came here as explorers um, or who then became settlers like the pilgrims or who then became the colonists. They had the permission of the church of the Pope to take and to to take what they were willing to settle, um, and at any means possible, which oftentimes meant killing Native people. So those are the types of stories, true stories, facts, truth, that. Uh, aren't taught in our classes. And of course, Native peoples were not Christian. We certainly had a belief system and believed in a creator and believed in the relationship between all of our relatives, human and non-human. But that's a very different way of thinking believing. But because we didn't practice our religion similarly to way Christians did, it didn't matter.
0: Centuries later, while the Westward Expansion was taking place, a newspaper editor further legitimized this idea and coined the term Manifest Destiny.
2: So Manifest Destiny was the message that God had placed European white people on this land and it was divine that God did that. Manifest Destiny was the permission that God gave white people to take over all the rest of the land from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific.
0: A lot of students in America learn about Manifest Destiny in school as if it is a fact. And beyond this, there is so much more to say about this history. Vance also explained the story Americans learn about Thanksgiving is not accurate.
2: I, for one, don't celebrate Thanksgiving. That story around Thanksgiving, the pilgrims and the Indians, that has so many more layers than just Native people coming to the aid of the pilgrim folks. There's multiple meals. And the Thanksgiving wasn't about the harvest meal necessarily, but rather some will say that it was a generation later of folks who had massacred hundreds of Native people in that region and then celebrated, wanted to celebrate the fact that they'd massacred um, over half the tribe to be able to take their land.
0: As time progressed, the United States government made repeated Efforts to eradicate Native communities. There was the Indian Removal Act, spearheaded by Andrew Jackson, which displaced many Native communities and forced them onto reservations. There was also the Native American boarding school era, which we talked about more in our first episode, so go and listen to that if you haven't yet. But however atrocious this history may be, and however resilient Native people have been to still survive and exist today, we do not emphasize these stories and perspectives enough in our classrooms. Vance explains why it is so important to start doing so.
2: You know, it is it is vital for our public schools and private school systems to begin incorporating Indigenous narratives and Indigenous history because it's all of our history and it impacts all of us. What a treasure has been lost in thinking that European identity white privilege is the better experience in our world and i think that may be the reason why the united states government state governments universities don't want teachers to teach it to children today the truth because it means that they have to implicate themselves and implicate the federal government in this atrocious and horrific policy and era on indigenous peoples and indigenous children in particular
0: Vance says that some teachers do implement accurate historic
2: lessons in their classrooms, but we need more. But for us, we need to make sure that we have allies who are saying, no, this is important. It is important for us to know about the original peoples of this land. There are benefits to everyone in both knowing the truth and joining Native people on this healing journey. One of the examples would be, you know, right now we're in this climate crisis, There are some people who don't believe in that. But Native people were like, dude, can you not see what's going on around you? There are changes happening. And we have experienced changes before that were not related to climate crisis that might look similar. But this is something different. And we have been begging and shouting, but a lot of folks don't hear us, right?
0: Shifting focus here, we're now going to examine U.S. history through the lens of Black history. Similar to Native history, when it comes to Black history, many of us just didn't learn a very accurate or comprehensive story. I know that in most American schools, we basically just learned about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. We talked about slavery a little bit, But there wasn't really a focus on the unique ways that black people have influenced history in America. To learn more about better ways to discuss black history, we spoke with Dr. LeGarrett King. He's a professor at the University of Missouri, and he's an expert on African American history and critical race theories. Dr. King says that when we don't learn the full story, we have no historical memory, which means it's easier for history to repeat itself. Dr. King has developed a set of principles to guide teachers in this teaching. He is now going to walk us through them.
1: In my research, uh, reading books written by um, historians of Black history, as well as listening to Black teachers and and kind of researching Black teachers throughout the uh, years, I found that there were several different principles that Black educators have been trying to tell you know the educational community how to teach black history right so so for me I initially started off with six principles from there and now for a more contemporary kind of look at education I've added two more principles that I haven't built out you know fully yet but what I call kind of a black historical consciousness is this approach of teaching black history with the voices of black people the perspectives of black people So the first theme is power, oppression, and racism, right? Um, You know, of course, this is principle one and no legitimate black history program can be taught without teaching about the institutional and structural ways in which race has played, power has played, oppression has played through the lived realities of Black people. That's just that's just the way it is. That's, that's how our society has kind of constructed itself. And we really need to do a very steep look into these notions of race, right? And while, you know, people would like to kind of talk about you know, individual racism, which is great, but also this this notion of systemic racism, I think, is extremely important because one person cannot destroy an entire system. Principle two is this notion of agency, resistance, and perseverance. Now, we cannot teach Black history simply based on oppression, right? When we teach Black history simply on oppression, what happens is that we begin to structure what I would call a victim narrative. And it's extremely important to understand that black people have not been strictly victims. They have been victimized, but they've never been strictly victims, right? So they have fought back through various different means. And that's what agency means, just kind of this pushback, try to make you know lives better. Principle three is this notion of Africa and the African diaspora and various different migrations. Uh, this is extremely important because again, black history did not begin with slavery. So there's thousands and thousands of years of history that we need to explore. So not beginning with slavery, but beginning with ancient Africa, and then really understanding Africa and the various different ethnic groups and various different people that live, you know, within that continent. And the African diaspora is extremely important, too, because now we kind of get into this notion of Blackness is global, right? So how 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 is Blackness similar and different in various different parts of the country. And um, those are some really interesting, um, you know, teachings and findings. Principle four deals with this notion of Black joy and Black love. Uh, Black history is not defined through oppression and liberation. Sometimes Black people were just people. And if Black people have experienced joy, I think sometimes when we simply focus on oppression and we simply focus on liberation, we dehumanize Black folk in, in this way that there's some super- super people, right? That's always kind of a force and and we don't necessarily focus on their humanity. And their humanity is you can experience joy even through oppression. So it's very difficult for a lot of teachers because you you have to be careful because, because you have to teach joy without trivializing the notions of oppression. Principle five is this notion of black identities and intersectionality. Again, typically we focus on black middle-class Christian able-bodied men as the the top of the black history narrative. And we need to focus a little bit more on black women, black children, black LGBT communities and all these particular aspects uh, who make up black communities. Principle six is probably the most controversial, which is Black historical contention. And what this says is two things, that Black people were not monoliths, so it's very important for us to teach various different approaches of Black history, various different ideas of Black people throughout our society. And number two, all Black history is not perfect. Sometimes we overcompensate for the lack of Black history, and we make Black history pristine and perfect. But what that does, it, again, dehumanizes Black people into these perfect people. And if they're not perfect, then they become not historically important, right? So we need to be able to make sure that we do talk about the complexities of Black people, the problematic aspects of Black people through history, just like we teach about all people, for us to get a more balanced approach and perspectives for Black history.
0: In addition to these six principles, Dr. King is working on two more that are not yet completely developed. Those are about black excellence and genius, and then another one about black living history and futurism. We're going to transition from history now and talk about the ways we learn about sex education in U.S. schools. Sex education curriculum varies state by state. In Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, There are explicit laws in place that forbid teachers of health and sexuality education from discussing lesbian, gay, and bisexual people in a positive light. Some schools even still teach abstinence-only education. 37 states have laws requiring that abstinence is included in sex ed. Only 18 states require educators to share information about birth control. What was your sex ed like? we asked some of our social media followers, and here is what they had to say. One follower said that they were taught abstinence only, that sex is between a man and a woman, and that pornography is evil. Someone else said that their sex education was incredibly uninformative and accompanied by feelings of embarrassment as a woman. Another follower, who went to a private Christian school, said that one day a pastor stood up and told the girls that they needed to be modest because guys are pigs and they can't control themselves. I recently spoke with Brittany McBride. She is the Associate Director of Sexuality Education for a nonprofit called Advocates for Youth. Brittany told me that the traditional way of teaching sex ed can be really harmful and uninclusive, especially abstinence only sex education.
3: I don't even consider abstinence only to be an education. I I refuse to call it an education. It is fear-mongering, it is a lack of information, it is shameful, and it doesn't give our young people the information that they have a right to. Not only is it shaming, but it completely erases so much of the needs and the desires of the young people in the room. It's always a conversation around avoiding pregnancy, So many people like pregnancy is not a concern when they're having sex. I am tuning out immediately. It is not um, inclusive and definitely not affirming and complete sex education is affirming of the fact that not everybody in the classroom is concerned around pregnancy, that we have LGBT students in the classroom who need to have a different kind of sex education, who need a different kind of information
0: The traditional form of sex education often operates under the belief that teaching kids about sex will make them want to have sex more. Brittany said that that's not even true.
3: Uh, I always talk about like, you know, I hope my child never has a flat tire on the side of the road, but if they do, they have every tool in their trunk to make sure that they get home safely to me. And I don't think anybody can argue with that. And that's what sex education is. It's not going to increase the likelihood that your kids are going to want to go out and get flat tires. Like That doesn't make them want to go and do any of that. I just wanna make sure that you have all of the the stuff there on the side of the road to fix your tire and get home. And that's what sex education is going to do. We're giving you all of the information that you may not even use anytime soon, but you might use it in the future and how wonderful it is when you use it in the future that you had access to it and you know it.
0: Advocates for Youth, where Brittany works, really promote the idea of a complete sex education.
3: And so complete sex education is an education that meets the needs of young people. Complete sex education covers all of the basic science stuff that everyone already assumes uh, is is included in sex education, but also is uh, going to cover topics about like healthy relationships and how to communicate effectively. We talk about communication. We talk about those strategies. We talk about how to end a relationship. We talk about consent. I like to really think of complete sex education as something that kind of covers life skills as opposed to just trying to prevent, you know, STD transmission. It's so much further than that. If young people only receive sexual risk avoidance or abstinence only content, that also doesn't help them uh, be able to get all of the information to make informed decisions. We find that complete sex education is truly that. It's an education and then young people are able to make a decision about their lives in a way that they can decide what their future will look like and help make those decisions to shape that future as opposed to life happening to them.
0: Brittany says that the earlier we start talking about sex education, the better. Complete sex education starts in kindergarten, but don't freak out. The conversations at that grade level have nothing to do with sex the way that adults think about it.
3: Really, you know, talking about how to respect a friend's choice when your friend may not want to share their goldfish with you. So we can start that with consent and they get to practice that. They get to learn how to cope with the fact of getting a no. Sometimes you get a no when you are really hoping to get a yes. And like, how do you deal with that? How do you respond to it in a way that still respects that friendship? When they get to practice those things, when they're really little, imagine how effective and how good they are at it by the time that they're in, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th grade, and maybe the request is for a kiss or something else. So we wanna give them those skills early on and we can cover all kinds of content when they're in kindergarten that way so that we're really setting them up for success.
0: The last thing we really wanted to talk about today was how to make classrooms more inclusive specifically for students in the LGBTQ community. I talked with Ace Schwarz, a middle school teacher in Pennsylvania. Ace developed classroom tools for teachers to implement that can help deconstruct the gender binary and support LGBTQ students in the classroom. They have a huge following on social media. Just go to Instagram and look up teaching outside the binary. One of the most popular tools ACE created is the get-to-know-you sheet. This sheet includes questions like how students feel about using technology in class and whether they prefer to work standing up or sitting down. But the form also asks students what their pronouns are and what name they would like to be called in class. ACE explains why tools like this are so important.
4: So the conversation is really important, like at all levels, because um, there's a lot of research that shows that when students have language to kind of describe how they're feeling, then they can, uh, you know, it it just leads to like more supportive environments. um, And the kids, when they have supportive adults, that can make a huge difference. You want kids to feel seen, safe, included and represented, like in the classroom.
0: Ace says that conversations like this are actually pretty easy for kids.
4: Like, I always frame it in terms of respect. So, like, I don't want to make any assumptions about you, which is why I ask. But the conversation itself is actually pretty, like, straightforward. And I have the benefit of having they, them pronouns, which, you know, for a lot of kids, it's the first time they're experiencing a teacher with that. So the conversation flows really naturally for me.
0: Ace explains that something like asking everyone's name and pronouns is actually pretty simple. But sometimes teachers do struggle to implement more inclusive language overall.
4: You have to kind of know um, the vocabulary. You have to kind of know the language. You just kind of need to know like what you should be doing, right? It's a learning process. I would say like no teacher is going to get it all like in one go. But if you do a little bit every year to make your classroom more inclusive, like it can make a really big difference in a student's life. I mean, that's not even an exaggeration.
0: Ace's audio cut out there but they went on to mention a report released by the Trevor Project in 2019. The report found that LGBTQ youth who have at least one supportive adult in their life were significantly less likely to report a suicide attempt. So, as you can see, improving school curriculum and classroom cultures can have really positive impacts, not only on students, but on our society as a whole. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope that you'll follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Vote one and if you want more content like this, make sure to subscribe to our newly launched Patreon. At the end of this month, we'll be releasing extended conversations with some of these guests. Next week, we're going to talk about the paths that students can take after their public school education is over. You will not want to miss it. The Youth Vote is hosted by me, Isaac Goff Mitchell, produced by Jamie Hobbs, and social media is managed by Bridget Junker. The music for the series is produced by Jim Young.